have you heard this expression before? Christianity is a relationship, not a religion. Christianity is a relationship, not a religion. Some Christians uh, don't like the word religion because, I suppose, because of its uh, negative connotations. And they are right to highlight the fact that Christianity definitely involves a a personal relationship with Almighty God. Uh, Our God is a God of Trinitarian personhood, after all, and one of those persons was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and came down to earth. But make no mistake about it, Christianity is is not less than a religion. Um, It has rights, symbols, standards of conduct, acceptable and unacceptable practices, and we shouldn't be embarrassed to acknowledge that. The contrast the Bible gives is not between relationship and religion, but between worthless religion and the religion that James describes in our passage this morning. Religion that is pure and faultless or pure and undefiled before God. And he speaks of it here in verse um, 27. A religion that manifests the kind of life God wants us to live. Uh, Going back to last week, a religion that does and not merely hears. Um, Here's a succinct definition. Religion that our God and Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress. And to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. James elevates this activity of caring for the poor. He puts it so high up in his hierarchy, he says, caring for the poor is an essential part of the Christian faith. Would you say that it's a central feature of your life? Is the care of the poor an essential feature of your life? My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, we must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but you say, the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom that he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, that is, to love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you, if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery... He also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act then as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because 
Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Well, the scenario he uh, paints here is pretty straightforward. Two visitors walk into the worship service. You can tell just by the appearance of the one that he is noticeably well off. So the ushers in the worship service escort him to a good seat. In the case of our worship service, that would be a seat in the back. Because <laughs> nobody wants to sit up here. feel bad for the musicians. Um, then the other man who walks in is clearly dressed in shabby clothing. He probably smells. So he's escorted away to the periphery of the room or, he, or even plopped onto the floor. Why would somebody do that? I mean, come on. Be nice to the poor guy. Don't show favoritism. I mean, it's such a simple moral lesson. Why would, why would any Christians kind of fall into the trap of doing something so blatantly wrong? And here's the answer. We fail to recognize the scenario that James describes here is simply how life worked. That's how life was in the Greco-Roman world. For them, social status and social rank meant everything. And the way that you would know someone's social status or social rank is you'd know them by their clothes. You would know them by the number of stripes they wore on their toga and by the number of rings they had on their fingers or medallions they had around their neck. And everything in, in life revolved around this stratified social system. So the seating at dinner parties, it was always arranged by class. If a poor person was even invited to such a party, they would, they would go in expecting to receive food that was inferior to the food that was being served to the honored guests. They wouldn't actually even think anything of it. In fact, when they came to church on Sunday and they were you know, shooed off to the side, they probably didn't think anything of that as well. The VIP seats in the Colosseum, you, as you can guess it, it was always for the rich. The rich were entitled to the best places at any public events. And when the state, the, the imperial state, distributed money, food, or wine, the rich were entitled to a larger share than the poor, even though they had far less need of it. So if a Christian son asked his father on Sunday morning, Dad, why do we do things like this? Why do we give preference to the rich guy over the poor guy? The dad most certainly would have said, Son, that's just the way the world works. Son, it's just the way the world works. And it probably would have been considered extremely rude and disruptive to the social order not to show preferential treatment to the rich guy. So the question I want to ask now, and fast forward 2017, is how does this world work? In what ways might we be inclined to show preferential treatment to other people. And sometimes it's, the reasons are, are extremely innocuous. For instance, we'll single out people who are most like us because we feel more comfortable around people who are most like us. 
birds of a feather flock together, and I feel more comfortable around somebody who uh, has my own feathers, right? If a dude walks into worship service today with a, with a bull ring in his nose and um, with red, flaming, spiked red hair, and then the next couple that walks in are this just attractive, white, suburban, well-educated, professional couple with two cute little kids that are somewhere between the ages of, of 6 and 17, and they walk in, they're just, they, they totally fit All Saints Presbyterian Church. Who's going to get a warmer welcome today? I think we all know who. Who gets more attention? Who is invited back next Sunday more warmly? It's innocuous because, of course, we're attracted to people who are like us. It's innocuous and it's also evil. He says in verse 4, let's look at it. Verse 4, when you do this, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? You probably never thought of it in those terms as, as, it be, as, it's, as it's evil. Okay, here's another question. Do you ever find yourself treating another person differently because they are connected or because they're educated or because they're wealthy? Do you ever find yourself singling that kind of person out? Probably the answer to that question is, yeah, no, I don't think so. I've never really thought about that. Um, or maybe, no, I, I don't know exactly how I would answer that question. If you start paying attention, you'll find that it's a very humbling and embarrassing exercise because you, you are doing this way more often than you, than you ever realize. It's just the way the world works. We call it networking. We cozy up to people who know somebody who has some connections and, you know, has, he can open doors of opportunity for us. And uh, we do that in church, I think. I know some people actually choose the church that they're going to attend to be a part of based on where they're most likely to find clients. There are some churches in the city that are considerably wealthier and considerably larger than others. And so you determine what church you're going to be part of based on who can, I, who can I land. How about this? Are you more impressed by a PhD from MIT than you are an associate's degree from the College of Southern Idaho? When somebody in a regular conversation says, <clears throat> PhD, <laughs> do your ears pick up, prick up? Do we treat him or her differently? The most painful example of preferential treatment can be found, uh, at least as far as clergy is concerned, in Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. How many of you remember Mr. Collins, the Anglican cleric who uh, has his fawning admiration for Lady Catherine de Bourgh? And, oh, Lady Catherine, and um, how he just falls, he trips over himself to, to be in his patron's good graces. Pastors also do this. Um, with, with people and families. We do it, oh man, there's that fam- I want that family to stick in our church. They're perfect here. She's great with kids. She'd be the best Sunday school teacher. And I try not to, but I find myself kind of moving towards those people. 
we all move towards certain kind of people. The question is why? Why do you move towards them? Well, here's one other example that I came up with. Uh, I was struck by. It's written by an Anglican minister. Uh, his name is Sam Al- Alberry. He writes a commentary uh, on the book of James. It's kind of self-explanatory. I'll just read it to you. <clears throat> he writes, For a number of years, I worked for a church in central Oxford and oversaw the ministry to students at Oxford University. I can tell you, I lost count of the number of times people would say to me, Sam, it's great that you're doing that work. Oxford students are so strategically important. It was something that made me feel deeply uncomfortable. Because I think it assumed that because of who they are in the world, Oxford students are more significant for the spread of the kingdom. But as far as I was concerned, the only reason that ministry to Oxford students mattered is the same reason that ministry to anyone else matters, because they're lost souls that Jesus came to seek and save. It's not because their academic abilities make them more strategically useful. In fact, the last thing many such students need to be told is that they are strategically important. He goes on. It's easy for Christians to find themselves thinking that if only we would get a sports star or a celebrity or a high-profile leader converted, then it would be a great coup for the gospel. Such people, by virtue of their position, are, are deemed to be more strategically valuable than others. And so resources are apportioned by the church accordingly. Uh, They are reckoned to be the key to reaching society as a whole. And so if a professional football player comes into church at the same time as a tramp or a bum, it's the football player that becomes the focus of attention. Finally, building a gospel strategy around key people in society contradicts the very insight that James is drawing to our attention. I mean, we follow a crucified criminal, right? We, um, our, our Lord and Master is a guy who had no place to lay his head. Uh, our dear Jesus was so disfigured on the cross beyond all human recognition. Um, would we have thought him strategically important? Would we have found ourselves rushing to welcome him into our church if he showed up? Would we give him the same warmth that we give to the, the attractive couple? Or um, Here's another scenario that's pretty straightforward. Two visitors walk into our church service this morning. One is clearly a tired and disappointed Boise State football coach. The other is clearly a gay man. Who's more warmly received? Who do the ushers take better care of? Who's invited to lunch afterwards? See, the scenario that James gives us here is not merely a case of social customs run amok. What James describes in his passage is a deep prejudice of heart and soul. And this was a prejudice that would have just seemed so natural to them. It was the prejudice of the Greco-Roman world again. It was where the rich genuinely despise the poor. You'll find references to this all throughout classical literature. For instance, Cicero, he speaks of contempt for the, quote, craftsmen, petty shopkeepers, and all that filth of the cities. He says that, he describes 95% of the imperial world as basically rubbish and filth. 
There's an ins- two inscriptions preserved on a wall in, in the city of Pompeii that are still there, you know, that are you know, preserved because of Vesuvius. And one of them reads, I hate poor people. If anyone wants something for nothing, he's a fool. Let him pay up and he'll get it. Or another, to certain people I shall not give, even though there is, there is need, because there will still be need even if I give. I mean, those are things that could have, those could be written in the 21st century. Those could have been written yesterday. You know, the Roman upper class thought that poverty was itself dishonorable, and they felt very little sympathy for the huge numbers of slaves that were part of the lower echelons of society. Uh, are we that prejudiced against the poor? Who are we so prejudiced against? I mean, the way the prejudices work is they're blind spots. You're, you're, you're not even self-aware of them. There is somebody I think God is prejudiced towards. Verse 5. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has God not, God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? Uh, verses like this and others have caused people to speak of God's preferential option towards the poor. Um, now, there are other places in the Bible where it says that one should give no preference to rich or poor But there's still other places that say that God is the defender of the poor. He is the defender of the poor. It never says that he is the defender of the rich. Why is it that God would care so much about the poor and write so much about the poor in his Bible? Well, because of this. Because the poor are not only disproportionately vulnerable to injustice, they are actually disproportionately victims of injustice. They're disproportionately robbed and beat, and murdered, and we know that law enforcement ordinarily is much quicker and more thorough in its response to violence against the rich and powerful than it is against the poor. If you want a further um, long treatment of this, a, a helpful one, you can read Tim Keller's book, Generous Justice, where he observes that while some passages call for justice for members of the well-off classes, the calls to render justice to the poor outnumber such passages by 100 to 1. So there are two words which should characterize our relationship to the poor. The first word is that word justice. And the second word is the word we find in verse 13. A word which can easily be misunderstood in English. And that word is mercy. When you and I hear mercy, we may be inclined to think of that word. I mean, mercy, what's mercy? Mercy is, is being kind, is being, um, is, is being you know, kind to another person. But when the Bible speaks about mercy, it, it, can think of, it can speak in terms of something much more direct and practical. For instance, Jesus walking along the road with the disciples and two blind men call out to him, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. When they call out those words to him, are they saying, Jesus, be nice to us, please? (laughs) Jesus, forgive us of our sins because we are sinners. No. They're saying, Jesus, we have a physical need, a physical disability that we need you to to heal. Please meet our material need. That word is also found at the end of the parable of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan 
tends the injured man's wounds, feeds him, clothes him, provides a financial subsidy for his lodging. And he's called, at the end of the parable, he's called the one who showed mercy. So in the New Testament, the word mercy can have a general sense of showing pity, but it can also have a very specific sense of caring for the poor, widows, and orphans, giving money, feeding the, feeding the hungry, sheltering the homeless, investing in economic development. It's all of that. Is that an essential, I guess, essential feature to your life? Or are you kind of like me, who sees the care for the poor as something that's good to do, and I'll fit it into my busy schedule when it's comfortable for, for me? There's another reason why I think God focuses on the poor, and that is the poor are a spiritual lesson for us. I came across this week a fairly scolding, moralistic cartoon that, um, that made a point. It, so in the very last slide of the cartoon, there is a man who's dressed in a uh, tux, and he's holding a martini in his hand. In the background, there's a banner that hangs on the wall that says, Congratulations, Richard. And he's surrounded by all of his other successful friends. Who, uh, they ask him this question, so Richard, what's the secret to your success? And he replies, less whining and more hard work. That's what I say. I'm sick of people always asking for handouts. No one ever handed me anything on a plate. <laughs> well, then you see in all the earlier slides, the picture of, of Richard and his childhood. <laughs> Richard in his past, how he was born into a loving, stable home with, a, with parents and a, um, a, a solid family, a warm house. How his smallest accomplishments were praised effusively by his parents from the earliest of age. How his parents panicked when in, I don't know, junior high or high school, he came home with a B plus on his report card. And so they immediately went out and got him a tutor. His tuition was paid for at college. His dad helped him land an internship through, through friends of his. Uh, it, again, it's a fairly scolding, moralistic cartoon, uh, and I'm not a big fan of those, but it makes a point that the mantra, I worked hard to get where I am in life, is only partially true. I mean, man, we got a lot of breaks, didn't we? So I went to the University of Arizona in Tucson, Arizona. If you drive on I-19, due south, out of Tucson, for 70 miles, you will come to the oh-so-beautiful city of Nogales, Arizona, which is an absolute dump and a hole in the wall. But if you drive one more mile south of Nogales, you will be in the even less lovely town of Nogales, Mexico. Now, isn't it kind of strange? If you had been born in Nogales, Arizona, with your work ethic and determination, you might have gotten to the place that you are right now in your life. You might have, you might have done it. It would have been hard, but you might have done it. And if you were born one mile south in Nogales, Mexico, there is virtually no chance whatsoever that you would have made it to where you are now. And no, I'm not talking about immigration policy. I'm, not, I'm talking about the recognition that, that everything we've achieved 
It's only by the grace of God. It's, it's, the, it's the successful man's heart which says, I've worked hard to go, get where I am in life, and if only you had a work ethic like mine, you would be there too. But it's the Christian's heart that says, only by the sheer goodness of God. And when you begin to see that you yourself were the poor homeless man, that that did describe your spiritual state before God chose to move toward you in your poverty to bring you off the streets and into his home, when you begin to realize that you were that bum and the tramp whom the Son of God became impoverished for so that you might, might be made rich, the gospel, that humbles you like nothing else will. And it certainly changes the way that you look at yourself and everyone else. So friends, how dare we ever be con- condescending toward people who have less than we do? Um, the language of the Christian's heart is, I am completely equal with anybody else. Um, how dare we think of ourselves as being moral superiors to, to moral inferiors out there in the world? Uh, or treat a Harvard graduate better than a kid with a GED? Or a kid with a GED better than a kid who's a high school dropout? How dare I let the world's standards change the way that I look at someone else and treat them? Now, when you see that you're the dirty, smelly, homeless person whom God has reached out to, um, well, hopefully I got my point across. Verse 6 and 7, I'm going to conclude pretty quickly here. James has a scalding attack upon the rich. And verse 6 and 7 is part of it, of chapter 2. It only gets worse by, by the end of the book. He says, uh, it, but you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who, who are exploiting you? Are, are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? One of the best sources, probably the best source of information that we have on the world of Judaism in the first century is written by a guy by the name of Josephus. Josephus and his, his uh, histories. Josephus was not a Christian, but he does in his histories actually describe this man James. He's called James the Just. And Josephus held James like the highest of esteem. He said James is one of the holiest men that had ever walked the face of the planet. He was in the temple every day, uh, praying, worshiping, giving his alms to the poor. He was a godly, godly man who scrupulously followed the law. He was He was stoned to death in 62 AD. And Josephus held James in such high regard, he wondered that uh, did the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, was that because the city's inhabitants actually killed James? In other words, did the murder of this godly man actually bring down the wrath of God upon the city? Josephus, of all people, asked that question. He said, why did, why did they kill such a good and godly man? And the answer is the same reason why they killed his half-brother. Because he attacked the people who were rich and in power. He offended them. He said things that they hated. When they said, this, that's just the way this world works, and he said, no, not anymore, they killed him for it. So to conclude, 
Number one, please do not pay attention to people based on what they can do for you or get from you. Love them equally. Be entirely impartial. Uh, Live out 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16, where Paul says, From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Do not judge anyone according to the world's standards. Number two, please make sure that everyone who comes to our church is greeted warmly and is made to feel welcome here. I mean, that's so simple. But you would not believe like, how big of a difference that can make on the life of a church and the spread of the gospel in a city. Please, please make sure that a gay man is welcomed as warmly as an attractive couple with cute kids or a person who has every kind of piercing you can imagine or a person who is disabled or a cool-looking hipster or a lady in a walker. Everyone should walk in this room and feel an equal amount of love. Thirdly, Please make sure that mercy towards the poor is not an optional choice when it fits comfortably into your lifestyle, but instead see it as an essential part of doing your faith regularly. I, I, I mean, I'm grateful that people, Red Cross is doing stuff in, uh, for the hurricane victims, and I mean, you see it all on the TV right now. I mean, all these people are making all kinds of sacrifices for those who've been affected by the hurricanes or or Lord have mercy, those who are, going to, are being affected by the hurricane right now. But the question is, why don't we do that every day? Why don't we care for, for the downtrodden like that every day? For the orphan, for the widow, for the homeless. Number four, please recognize just how much grace you have been shown. Every poor homeless person is a picture of you before you met Jesus. And then, of course, every homeless person who gets off the street, who gets a a new life, who gets a new home. What is that a picture of? That's a picture of the great redemptive power of the gospel. So recognize how how much grace you have been shown and live in such a way that people will see the very end of this passage. Mercy triumphs over judgment.